Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides, and alongside me is my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing, man? Always a pleasure, Phenomenal Phil. You know, I just <laughs> thought of that. Can I call you that? Is that no. How many times in your life have you been called Phenomenal Phil? Uh, that's definitely... I've had a lot of unwanted nicknames in my life. Um, a lot of different things you can do with the name Phil, but oh. uh, Phenomenal is not one of them. But it's better <laughs> than the other ones I've had, so... I was just going for alliteration, but oh, yeah. that's fine. Uh, it's nice to be here with you, take a break from the Olympics, and watch some MMA, relive some of the great moments from strike force and this isn't like the best show of all time but there is some drama and there are some good moments so i'm looking forward to today yeah and, and for those that that don't realize that based on what josh said we are uh going through the major events and fighters and milestones of strike force which was a very important innovative mma promotion that existed from 2006 until two thir 2013 on the show today we're going to be diving into strike force diaz versus noons 2 which is the noted don't be scared, homie, fight, <laughs> uh, which took place on October 9th, 2010 at the HP Pavilion in San Jose, California. Card is on the short side, only seven total fights, four on the main card, but it did feature two title fights, uh, which we'll get to momentarily. But Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Net Network. You can check out the other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. The most recent Strike Force event before this one was Strike Force Houston. Uh, the fight card there was not all that great, but there was definitely some big doings coming out of it. We had two new champions with Rafael Feijao resting the Strike Force light heavyweight title from King Mo and Jacare claiming the vacant middleweight title with a decision win over Tim Kennedy. We also saw Bobby Lashley suffer his very first career loss while Daniel Cormier got his first big show win. So some stars on the rise, some stars kind of going down. Uh, so that, that there was definitely some big things that came out of that card, even though, again, the card was, itself wasn't all that entertaining. This would kind of be a similar card uh, in my estimation. We'll get to that. But the next logical challenger for Nick Diaz as the Strikeforce welterweight champion uh, was clearly KJ Nunes. Kind of interesting in that Nunes normally competed at 155 pounds or 160 pounds, depending on the the promotion. While, of course, welterweight is 170 pounds, so he was going up a weight class. But this was a very easy fight to sell as Nunes had been the last fighter to defeat the champ. And as a reminder, Nunes, has, Nunes had beaten Diaz via doctor stoppage to win the Elite XC 160-pound title back in November of 2007, almost three years, uh, just a month short of three years prior to the bout that we're talking about today. It had been a controversial win in that Diaz wasn't knocked out or submitted. The fight had been stopped due to a bad cut. Uh, so here we go. Diaz versus Nunes 2 scheduled for October 9th. It would be a step up in weight, as I mentioned, for the challenger. So, uh, you know, maybe that would be a factor. But either way, this was a big time fight and really, truly one of the biggest fights that Strikeforce could make at that time. Diaz versus Nunes 2 would boast another title fight as Sarah Kaufman would finally get a chance to defend her women's bantamweight belt on a main card, on a big card as she would take on Marluz Kunin, who had previously lost to Chris Cyborg in a bid to win the women's featherweight title. Kaufman had won and exclusively defended the title on Challengers events and had been calling to get a shot on a big event, and now here she'd have her chance and, and against one of the best in the world in Kunin. Then in a bout with title implications, in the lightweight class, former champ Josh Thompson would take on Brazilian star Josias Jay-Z Cavalcante. Uh, Thompson had won nine of his last 10, which included taking the title from Gilbert Melendez, and who he had then lost the title back to the previous December. And now he'd have a chance to earn a trilogy bout with Melendez against Cavalcante, who had started out his career with a 14-1-1 record, which included two Grand Prix tournament wins in Japan, which is a big deal. 
However, he'd won only one of his last four fights, so he was looking to right the ship. Originally, Josh's favorite fighter, Luke Rockhold. Josh, you got so close to be talking about uh, uh, Luke Rockhold again. First time in a while, he was scheduled to lock horns with Matt Lindland on the main card, uh, which would have been an intriguing bout. However, as has often happened to Rockhold, he got injured, hurt his shoulder, and had to be pulled from the card. You know, I, I sense a little, um, you know, whimsy in your voice when you talk about <laughs> Luke Rockhold, and I think you should show a little more respect to uh, one of the greatest legends some, of strike. Put some force. respect on that name. <laughs> um, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. I was, you know, bum. You know, that's that's really like too bad because that's kind of the story of Rockhold. He had great potential, but he sure did get injured a lot. A lot uh, he wasn't utilized lot. correctly. And I feel like when we saw him early on, it was like, who is this guy? He's really good. But there were these long gaps between when we would see him. And I think his injuries, not unlike Cain Velasquez really put a damper on an otherwise really strong career. So yeah. that's too bad. And there were, and there were teammates too. And, and I literally just thought of this, but Matt Lindland, not a guy really known for his good looks or his, you know, the aesthetics of his body. And if you remember right, Rampage Jackson said after beating him, you know, man, you stink. Like mm. you need to take a shower. Yeah. So you've got this kind of grimy. And I, and I believe it. I looked it up and saw that like teammates said that sometimes he wouldn't shower in order to kind of throw off his opponent. So you've got this like stinky, smelly, not really, <laughs> you know, good looking guy. Body is not, you know, not the greatest against literally a guy that would become a model. Yeah. <laughs> about, well, so. clear. Clearly, Luke Rockhold was not going to soil his body by yes, even entering yes. the like, hexagon. Yes, he's like, oh, my, my, my injury or my, my shoulder hurts all of a sudden. <laughs> Demi Lovato was never going to date him if he actually touched Matt Lindland. So he must have Did had he that date sort of... De- I didn't know that. Did he date, date Demi Lovato? Oh, yeah. You can go on Oh, Google. I didn't know that. <laughs> they, they, had, they had a little bit of fling. And oh, I had no I, idea. I don't know how it ended, but um, I guess they started having conversations, and Demi Lovato said, I'm out of here. No, I don't okay. know what happened. <laughs> Uh, well, unfortunately, the world would be robbed of Rockhold Lindland. Who knows how that would have gone? <laughs> but instead, uh, we'd be replaced by a scrap between another good-looking guy in Tyron Woodley, Woodley uh, undefeated at that point, and Andre Galvo, which uh, Galvo, which would also be a very interesting bout. Woodley was clearly a star on the rise, while Galvo himself was five and one, also a big prospect to watch. So we're going to break down that card. On this episode, uh, no new champions in the UFC at this time. We'd like to talk about what was going on in the UFC at the time of the Strike Force card that we're covering. Uh, we will have new bantamweight and featherweight champs crowned uh, later on in this year. So the next card that we talk about, we're going to cover both of those. But still got Frankie Edgar holding the lightweight title. GSP still the undisputed welterweight champ. Anderson Silva still the reigning middleweight champ. Uh, Mauricio Shogun Hua still with the light heavyweight title. And Brock Lesnar for just... Uh, another week after this card that we're talking about today, uh, he or just about a week and a half actually, would be holding the undisputed heavyweight championship, and he would lose that uh, in the next UFC uh, event. Uh, event that after the one that we're going to cover on this card, which was UFC 120, took place at the O2 Arena in London, England, on October 16th, 2010. The event drew 17,133 fans for a gate of two and a half million dollars. On the undercard, Alexander Gustafson submitted Cyril Diabate, uh, which featured a, a bunch of UK fighters on that undercard. And then on the main card, Czech Congo uh, and Travis Brown ended in a, a draw. And then uh, Carlos Condit handed Dan Hardy his first knockout loss of the first round KO in the co-main event. 
And then in the main event, Michael Bisbing took a unanimous decision victory over Yoshihira Akiyama, also known as Sexyama, inching, inching himself closer to title contention. Can I just say something here, Phil? Uh, Is it about may- Sexyama? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's about Brock Lesnar. Uh, it was always my dream for Brock Lesnar to have both the UFC Heavyweight Championship and the WWE or Universal Championship. Like, I think that would have been so cool oh, for yeah. him to, to defend both titles at one time. Probably not going to happen, but then again, the UFC's heavyweight division is so weak. Who knows? It might happen one day. I wanted to also just sort of um, you know point out a little bit here that, oh, tr- you know, you mentioned Travis Brown. And um, Travis Brown, another one of my, like, favorite heavyweights in the UFC. He never really made it big. I thought he was a guy with a lot of promise, uh, but he's definitely a, a, a star who, or, or a guy who I really enjoyed watching kind of a big guy. I liked his style, but um, you know, he, he never made it. You know, he never, he never was champion, never made it big, but I just want to give a little shout out to him. Yeah. Yeah. Good call. Uh, I will mention, and I'll explain how I got to this, but thing about Brock Lesnar. Yes. It would have been awesome to see that. I, I would say that if Jake, uh, oh dang it! Now I'm bl- bl- uh, Jake uh, Hager. Sorry, or AEW, who's also comp- a competitor for Bellator. I think I would I would not put it past. I don't think Dana White would have let Brock compete in WWE while he was with the UFC. Obviously, uh, Scott Coker's got no issue with with Jake Hager competing in both AEW and Bellator. Uh, so I think if somehow Jake were to somehow win the heavyweight title that we could see the Bellator, you know, heavyweight champion, and then, you know, they put the, the strap on him in AEW. I could see that happening, which would be, you know, pretty amazing. Uh, this leads to me thinking about Bellator and the recent, it's not official yet, I don't believe, uh, but apparently the Fedor sweepstakes for his fight in Russia with Bellator yeah. has has ended and it's going to be Timothy Johnson, which I am don't know that I could be more disappointed uh, by that. Um <laughs> He's still supposedly going to have, I think, one more bout, maybe two more after this one. But the fact that Bellator is making its debut in Russia and he's Fedor's matching off. Hey, Timothy Johnson has a fantastic mustache and, you know, he's a decent fighter. But dude, when you're talking about Fabricio Verdun, you're talking about Alistair Overeem for the first time. I mean, even rumors of, of Brock Lesnar and just all kinds of crazy fights that could happen. We end up with, I mean, no disrespect, but we end up with Timothy Johnson, like just not... I'm not happy about that at all. I was really hoping we'd see the the rematch with Verdun, and he had thrown his name in that. Even Junior Dos Santos would have been better, in my opinion. I I really don't want to see him against a, a guy who's, you know, super like I guess in his prime still and coming off a, a heavyweight title loss. I'm just or I think an interim heavyweight title loss in Bellator. Just not a fan of that at all. But it it is what it is. Well, so, you know, it is Scott Coker booking and. He's had moments of genius, and you know we've talked about it on the show. Moments where you're like, I don't get that. So it yeah. is what it and, is. And I mean, I I don't know. Obviously, we don't know what the money situation was behind the scenes. That maybe all the guys I mentioned were asking for way too much money, and you know, I don't I don't know. Obviously, but just frustrating that that that's who they ended up matching them up with. Because I would have loved to have seen a one off with a guy like Brock or Alistair, or again that rematch with with Verdun would have been awesome. But again, it is what it is. All right, let's get back to the Strike Force card at hand. Strike Force Diaz versus Nunes took two took place on October 9th, twenty twenty or twenty twenty. Ha! Great note taking on my part. Uh, back in two, 2010, actually October 9th, twenty ten, at the HP Pavilion 
in San Jose, California, drawing 7,559 fans for a gate of $528,466. The event drew 350,000 viewers on Showtime with a peak of 509,000 viewers. Uh, real quick, Josh, I was not at this event despite it being in San Jose. Were you at this event by chance? I was not at this event. No. Okay. All right. Is this so the part I of the show where you talk about how little money they actually drew compared to the UFC. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like I said, like, <laughs> dude, this was one of the biggest grudge matches that they could put on at this time. And, uh, you know, they draw a gate of 530,000, essentially, drawing, mm -hmm. you know, 7,500 fans. By the way, their last uh, fight in San Jose featured Fedor, and they drew over 11,000 fans and a, and a gate of over a million dollars. So they were essentially half of what they drew last time they were in San, San Jose. And again, with one of the biggest cards, and we're talking, and that card that we just covered from the O2 Arena of the UFC, uh, UFC 120. I mean, you got Bisping and Akiyama in the main event, and and it drew a two and a half million dollar gate, over seventeen thousand fans. So probably, and I was as I was reading, I was, there was complaints about the quality of the card. They're focusing too much on British fighters and not putting in real big names in there, and all this stuff. And yet, it still draws over seventeen thousand fans, which is. Uh, over two times, you know, what we get at this, this Strikeforce event in their home market of San Jose. And then again, uh, one-fifth of what they drew for that, that card in England. I mean, yeah, it's just, like I said, I mean, the, the UFC is going to get – or the UFC is going to purchase them just not too many months after this card. So yeah. it, it's, you know, it, yeah, there was just – Strikeforce, as I've, we've as we've discovered during this show, Strikeforce was never really a contender to the UFC. It's it's just the way that it is. So, uh, but yeah, no Gus Johnson on this one, thank God. And uh, instead, we got Mauro Ranallo in the lead seat with Frank Shamrock and Pat Militic on the call, which was an interesting decision to have two pri uh, former fighters providing color commentator commentator excuse me color commentary and kind of providing insight. Also interesting at this point that Frank and Pat had uh you know had talked about having a fight and it, it didn't end up happening so kind of kind of interesting and then a quick note strike force debuted its final logo and branding at this event all right let's get to the undercard on the undercard at 155 pounds jess buscal defeated luis mendoza via submission come by way of arm triangle at three minutes of the second round at 185 pounds josh mcdonald defeated ron kessler via unanimous decision and then in the main event of the undercard james terry defeated david marshall at 170 pounds via unanimous decision and that wraps up the undercard and we may be setting a record we're under 15 minutes in and we're already to the main card so i think this episode is going to be on. don't the jinx side. it don't jinx i know it. i know you know you tell me there's a lot of time to talk i, I start know. talking so be careful <laughs> fair enough all right, we get to the opening card or opening uh, bout of the main card. 170 pounds, Tyron Woodley defeated Andre Galvo via TKO, coming by way of punches at 148 of the first round. So this is a, a quick one. Galvo was uh, Galvo was a multi-time world champion in jiu-jitsu, was five and one with three submissions and one knockout in MMA with two straight wins in strike force. He had some big wins for a guy with, uh, of his experience level with wins over George Patino, Luke Stewart, and John Alessio. So he looked like he'd be a tough matchup for Woodley. Woodley, for his part, was a two-time All-American at the University of Missouri in wrestling, was undefeated in, at 7-0 with six submissions uh, on his record, which included four straight wins in strike force. Got a little interesting side note. I mean, you never really known as a submission specialist, so you're 7-0 with six submissions on your record. And I looked at them. I mean, they were all legit, like, you know, arm, you know, wasn't someone submitting due to punches or that sort of thing. So that, that, was, that was kind of interesting, but uh, Woodley was uh, – 
wouldn't wouldn't have to put those submissions skills on display in this one. Uh, so let's get to the action. Mara Ranallo, by the way, looking like a mafia don with his fully slicked back hair in this one. I don't know what you thought about that, Josh, but that, that kind of jumped out at me. I can see that. He, he looked more like Eddie Munster to me. Yeah, it was just yeah, that's fair. That's slicked fair. back. Uh, but, I mean, he's so good. He can look like Herman Munster. He's yeah. so good at his job. I mean, yeah, we'll let and, it go. And, and that was the one thing, you know, is uh, the key, the best thing about strike i mean it's a lot of good things but one of the best things about strike force is just marvinello and just seeing yes. him call all these fights and see him grow as a announcer he's or as a commentator so good you know i noticed something when he was uh, dur- during this i noticed something was that uh, he just he's so good at teeing up his partners to to say something smart you know he he would say something and then uh, you know essentially tee up frank to jump in and say what do you think about this or you know, hey, yeah, you could see that he's really he's trying to grind. Pat, how, how does that translate? You know, or whatever. He just was so good about setting up the guys with him to make it, it's like a ring general yeah. in pro wrestling, you know, where it, you, you don't have a great dance partner for that match, but you know what you're doing, you're experiencing, you can kind of lead them through it. Not And not saying Frank and Pat didn't know what they were talking about, but he just did such a good job of teeing these guys up, kind of like the Ric Flair, you know, of commentary where he would bump and look, make the other guys look really good. It just felt like Morrow and Morrow would get his shots in for sure. And he corrected um, when, uh, when Pat said, I don't know if you noticed, but Militich said it when, Oh yeah. When he brought up, uh, when, when Morrow brought up boss Rutten and he said, El Guapo, we love that guy. And uh, Morrow goes, it's El Guapo, get it right. You know, and, <laughs> and they, that, yeah. they all, they all kind of had a laugh, which is funny because Militich could have just twisted his head off. Uh, off his shoulders right there but yeah just a good call and and definitely despite the hairstyle <laughs> always a big fan well, of well i mean between the hairstyle and frank shamrock's awkward braces i mean mm. come on it's <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of commentary there yeah yeah and then uh pat's just nasty cauliflower ears yeah was, uh... <laughs> anyway having said that i love this team this, this yeah it's a great team great. Yeah. It was a great team. They, I think they all meshed really, really well. There was some good laughs, you know, like, like a, but appropriate laughs during the card. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. The commentary actually might've been the best part of this card in, in many ways, but, uh, but yeah, Galvo, uh, Galvo had uh, Dominic Cruz in his corner was the, who was the WEC Bantamweight title holder at that point. And just a few months after this would become the UFC's initial inaugural uh, Bantamweight title holder. Woodley, for his part, had been training with Jason High, who was the only fighter to have defeated Galvo at that point. Uh, but at, once the action commenced, Galvo stunk Woodley with a nice jab early, but Woodley returned fire with a nice one-two combo that briefly stunned the Brazilian. And Woodley was fighting smart, though. He was stuffing takedowns, not taking the bait and going to the mat at all. And Galvo was clearly hurt from the shots he had taken. And after Woodley stopped another another takedown, the Brazilian stood up and was noticeably wobbly on his feet. I mean, you could hear the crowd react when he stood up because it was clear he was hurt and uh Woodley landed another strike and the ref had seen enough and stepped in and stopped the bout it was a little bit anticlimactic but uh it was a clear win for Woodley he got his first TKO win well I just hope Jake Paul has watched this fight so he knows who he's going to step into the cage with because this was this was really good Tyron Woodley um so let me talk about a little little bit about this I really felt that um I mean, it was odd, okay? It was really interesting to watch at the beginning to see Galvo, Galvao sort of just, to me, he looked scared. Did you see that? 
Did yeah, you notice? He didn't look real, he didn't look real confident. I, I I'd agree with that. And at this level, I I don't think they're really scared. I mean, maybe they're scared when they fight, you know, a, a heavyweight or knockout power, something like that. But I just got the sense that he didn't want to be there. He just looked really jittery. He looked nervous. He did not have a confident swag. And so I sort of feel like he was done before the fight started. And I don't know how that happens because uh, they're both uh, good fighters, professionals, and I feel like he may have psyched himself out a little bit. You could see the fear in his eyes. Now, the, once the fight started, there was nothing there. I mean, he got tagged by Woodley really early. He collapsed. And, and what I really like, too, is Woodley looked so good. He looked fresh. He was moving his body. He had head movement. He was aggressive. He looked like the young rising star that we were all so excited about not too long ago. And I loved how Militech said that Woodley's a good striker but needs to relax and throw his punches. It was really good analysis. Um, and it actually would be more true later in, in Woodley's career when he would start to slow down and you know have these fights where you're just like begging him to do something, to throw a punch. Uh, but I, I feel like uh, this, was, this was really good showing by Woodley. He took on a guy who I think psyched himself out before – the fight started and uh yeah it was it was good to watch you know you could see right away that, oh if this guy can wrestle and he can punch he's gonna be a threat in this business and you have to wonder how much this uh, kind of played into galvao's uh his mindset going on because this would actually be his last fight the following year he would get injured and have to pull out of an mma bout and that would be it for him he, he wouldn't attempt to get back into mma uh, he continued to compete in bjj competitions up until 2017 but yeah ends his career at Five and two. Uh, Woodley said after the fight that he wanted a title shot, uh, but he would be back in Strike Force on a challenger challengers card the following January before taking on Paul Daly, which is a, obviously a massive step up. Later in 2011, I'm looking forward to covering that fight. I was, I'm always happy to co co uh, cover Paul Daly fights. All right, next bout, 135 pounds. Marlouz Kunin defeated Sarah Kaufman via submission, coming by way of armbar at 159 of the third round to win the Strike Force Women's Bantamweight Championship. Kunin was 17-4 with 12 submission and three knockouts coming in, though she'd lost two of her last three fights. And I believe we mentioned this earlier, but she was coming off a featherweight title loss to Chris Cyborg uh, in January. Kaufman was undefeated with a record of 12-0, including nine knockouts. She was on quite a run. She had uh, she had won four straight in strike force, and those included wins over, check out this group, Misha Tate, Shayna Baszler, a very tough Takeo Hashi. I, I wasn't aware of her, but I looked her up, and she had she, I think that was actually her first loss. She was 13-0 coming into that. Very, very accomplished fighter. And Roxanne Modafferi. So I, it was, you know, big deal. And the Modafferi win in particular was very noteworthy. It was a brutal slam knockout to the back of her head, uh, just nasty stuff. So Kaufman was in a really good place uh, for this fight for sure. And and this was looking like it was going to be a good battle. Uh, but once we saw the, the bell ring, pretty long feeling out process early on with the challenger showing her striking skills. She tagged the champ about halfway through the, the round, drawing some ooze from the crowd. Pretty much the only highlight of the first round. Uh, close, but I, I would give it 10-9 to Kunin. The second round was just something you could basically skip. I mean, yeah, I could see why Coker appeared to not be a huge fan of Kaufman's as evidenced by her continually put, uh, I'm sorry, by him continually putting her on challengers cards because this second round, she, all she did was clinch. She just clinched Coonan against the cage, much to the screen of the crowd. They started booing. And that's really how most of the second round went until the, until the end, towards the end of the round, Coonan twisted her hips and, and did a hip toss and flipped Kaufman to the mat 
uh, getting out of yet another clinch. And Kaufman, to her credit, she was very strong. She was able to muster her way to top position. The challenger went for a couple arm bars from the bottom, which proved prophetic. Um, but we finally got to see some action. But again, another 10-9 round for Kunin. And then finally, we got to see a real fight in the third round. Kunin got things to the mat pretty early on. But once again, Kaufman showed her power and reversed to get top position. She started raining down some hammer fists. And you could see she was she was connecting. She was really uh, – she got into it. And she just kind of let go too much. And Kunin quickly wrapped her up in a very tight arm bar from the bottom, which forced a nearly immediate tap from Kaufman and the ref was a little bit too late stopping uh, stepping in to stop it and Kunin appeared to hold on maybe an extra beat too long I it was I definitely didn't think it was anything egregious but Kaufman was pretty upset uh, Kunin was extremely apologetic like I said I don't think it was intentional I, and it was kind of unfortunate because it kind of took away from you know it was a big win and, and she had a, a title and you know kind of took away from the moment uh, Kaufman you know, I understand her being upset, but and she was gracious, but she seemed really upset, and that seemed to draw most of the attention to the immediacy of the fight being being stopped. Yeah, this was like the equivalent of when somebody wins in pro wrestling, and then the heel hits them with a steel chair to continue yeah, the feud, yeah, and you're yeah. left with a heel gets the heat, and you forget about who won. Conan was like the most unhappy person I've ever seen after they just won a championship. I mean, even when she was still on her back, and Kaufman is looking at her after the fight has been stopped, like she just looks so sad. Like, Oh, I'm sorry that I uh, almost broke your arm. Um, you know, she looks really, she was sad. She was apologetic, really put a damper. It did not feel at all like a championship win at all. It felt like what just happened. This feels kind of, kind of awkward. I feel like she did the right thing though. Like you have to hold on to the hold until you know the referee yeah, is going to so, stop. Yeah, until the it. ref steps in, you got to keep going. Because if she doesn't and Kaufman turns the tables, then you look like an idiot. So I think, you know, she has to do that. Um, I see what you're saying about Kaufman, not the flashiest fighter in the world, but no. I thought it was a good women's fight for its time, okay? I don't think we're seeing a whole lot of better fights um, at this stage than what we saw. We've got Kaufman. You know, she was never great, but she was good. She was technically, you know, strong. She was a go-getter. She didn't really have an X factor or this amazing personality. She was just like a good athlete who trained MMA, Muay Thai, and she went out there and competed. And I thought she did She did fine. Uh, she was also a very nice person. I, I, you know, I don't know if you ever interviewed her, Phil. No. no I, I did didn't. a couple times, and uh, she's very nice uh you know, she, she does interviews like she fights. She answers the questions. Not a lot much after that, but very kind. Um, so, you know, I thought she did a decent job, and she almost pulled it off, right? But she made the mistake that so many people make against jiu-jitsu black belts. She got too carried away, too excited. Next thing you know, she's about to lose her arm. She paid the price with that arm bar. So for her, it's unfortunate. For somebody who pr appreciates jiu-jitsu, it's beautiful. It's a masterpiece. Like, wow, you just tapped this girl out from your back who was just hitting you in the face. So, you know, I think Kaufman probably a little bit underrated because of all of those negative characteristics we talked about. Conan was great. Um, she did so many things well in the cage. Uh, you know, she obviously had, you know, trouble with cyborg, but you know, I think we talked about this before. She, she belongs on the Mount Rushmore of women's MMA, maybe the last spot, but she belongs. She, I think she, she's definitely the, the forgotten, you know, the forgotten member of it for sure. And, 
um, I don't want to spoil it, but you know, she does end up taking on Misha Tate. Who's, uh, you know, on a lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, Mount Rushmore's for, you know, for women's MMA for a lot of people and couldn't won the fight. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and as far as Kaufman goes, I, you know, yeah, it, she just, she didn't have that it, you know, factor, like kind of the X factor, like you said. And, and I think that kind of hurt her. I mean, she was 12 and 0 coming in with nine finishes, you know, like, like nine knockouts, basically. Like that's a pretty good finishing rate undefeated. And it's not like she was taking on tomato cans. Like she was fighting good fighters. So I think it's fair, but it's just seems like, again, in this moment, here's her opportunity, you know, and she just didn't, she just kept clinching. I was like, what is her game plan? Like, what's she trying? Like, what is she actually trying? You just trying to squeeze her to death? Like, I, I just didn't see, I didn't see what she was trying to do, you know? And uh, I think Kunin was just a better fighter, had more weapons, had more ways to beat Kaufman. And, and she did. I think, I think she just overall was a better fighter. Kaufman, like you said, was a good fighter, very good fighter, but I don't think she was great. I don't think she was elite and it kind of showed in this fight. So, uh, but in the post fight interview with the new champ, Mara revealed that Misha Tate would be Kunin's first challenger. Uh, that would, again, make for an interesting fight. Kaufman will be back in Strikeforce the following year. The Tate bout would actually get scheduled for March of 2011, but would get postponed due to Cupcake getting injured. Instead, Kunin would defend the belt against Liz Carmouche on that card instead. All right, we're at the co-main event, 155 pounds. Josh Thompson defeated Jay-Z Cavalcante via unanimous decision. Thompson was 17-3-1 coming in with nine submission and four knockouts. Uh, coming into this very high-stakes bout, Cavalcante was 15-3-1 with seven submissions and five knockouts coming in. He had some solid wins in his career, beating Bart Palaszewski, uh, Ronnie Yaya, uh, Kyle Uno, Nam Phan, and Vito Ribeiro. So some, you know, not necessarily huge names, but definitely some very quality wins there. But he'd lost the big fights, including to Shinya Aoki and Tatsuya Kawajiri. In fact, the Aoki fight, they were supposed to fight, and then uh, one of them got injured, and, and so that didn't end up happening. Uh, and then they end up uh, get, they end up do fighting. And then uh, when they fought, uh, 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 Aoki, he actually got a – it turned into a no contest. It was supposed to be the opening round of a lightweight Grand Prix, and Aoki uh, basically got injured via illegal downward elbows to the back of the head. And then they did rematch uh, just a, a month, a month and a half later. And Aoki got the Nianus decision win. And then he lost by Nianus decision to Tatsuya Kawajiri. So he'd gotten some big fights and then, you know, had lost by decision in those. So this was a chance for him to kind of, like I said, right the ship and a big opportunity for the Brazilian uh, once uh, we get to the fight itself, huge reaction for the hometown hero in Thompson, as you would expect. Uh, it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed this, Josh, but he was told by a CSAC member, California State Athletic Commission guy, that he, while he was uh, essentially while he was in the cage, that he couldn't have a knee wrap on. Uh, he then puts it back on. I, I'm, I'm, at that time, I'm thinking this is weird because I know for a fact that Frank Shamrock had fought in San Jose with knee wraps. Mm -hmm. So that was that was kind of weird. Uh, and, and we'll get to that in just a second. But uh, apparently... Uh, what had happened was the knee wrap that he had was actually a knee pad, and you're not allowed to have padding uh, inside the knee, and that's why the the CSAC member was was calling him on it, which was which was correct. Uh, but lightweight champ Gilbert Melendez joined the team on commentary for this one, knowing that the winner would likely get the next title shot against him, and, and so there we go. After some nice exchanges, Jay-Z caught Thompson with a nice punch with about two minutes left in the first round, dropping him. Thompson grabbed the leg, and the Brazilian grabbed an arm and guillotine, squeezing for all he was worth. 
uh, looked very tight. And I thought Thompson might tap, but he weathered the storm. And that was it was pretty cool to see that because you could see him grimacing, talking about Jay-Z, grimace, grimacing and mm-hmm. really squeezing. And I mean, it looked like a fight, you know, like it looked like a legitimate fight. Uh, then Jay-Z grabs another submission, but Josh is able to lock in an arm triangle top or sorry, an arm triangle from the top. And he was able to improve position. And I really think he would have gotten it if the round hadn't run out. I mean, it was it was pretty tight. So really good back and forth first round. The crowd was hot. I mean, just just an incredibly entertaining first round. Tough to score, but I'd probably give it to Jay-Z at 10-9. Yeah, I feel like this is sort of a, a forgotten round in Strike Force history. I certainly forgot about it. This was an amazing round. It was unreal. I became an even bigger Josh Thompson fan after this. This guy's neck and back were at a 90-degree angle for a good minute. I mean, you could just see, like, the top of his spine, right, was like, you could see it. And then his head is just buried underneath. Like, that cannot, I mean, it's over. He he has to tap or he's going to go to sleep. I have not seen many guillotines uh, seemingly applied that tightly. Obviously, it wasn't because he was able to survive it. But, you know, he he just had this, uh, this... Something he's always had, this just this pride about him. Like, I am not going to quit, and I'm going to keep fighting. And we've talked about this. Josh Thompson always looks like he is having fun in there. He's so loose. And if you can stay poised when you're about to go to sleep, that's like next level... <laughs> Uh, professionalism and confidence. So I was just really impressed because I think most fighters would have tapped. Fedor tapped, you know. Uh, he had never been in that spot, but you know, it was a different hold, but it was, you know, essentially go to sleep or tap. So I thought that was pretty amazing. And, you know, this guy's not going to tap in front of Gilbert Melendez anyway. He's, you know, no way. He's not going to do that. You know, he's calling the show. Um, I thought he showed a lot of heart. Uh, Josh Thompson, part Mexican. I don't know if you know that. Not to stereotype, but he's got that kind of like a lot of that that fighter pride that a lot of the Mexican you know boxers have. A lot of the Mexican fighters of like, I am not quitting. We see it with Melendez. We see it with the Diaz brothers, and he's just tougher than nails. Um, and how demoralizing would it, it you know was it for Jay Z to sort of give everything you got, and then the guy slips out? Like, what do you yeah. got now? And you're exhausted, you're tired, and then you almost get choked out at the end of the round. Like, how did you go from, like, the biggest win of your career to all of a sudden, holy cow, is the bell going to ring? Because I don't think I'm going to make it, you know. So I, I just thought it was a really good round. And, and I know that this would be kind of a controversial decision, but I think Josh Thompson coming back from this round, um, you know, he deserved a win. Yeah, it was it was definitely a very entertaining round, especially the second half. I did not know that Thompson was part Mexican, uh, but that's uh, that's obviously pretty cool. My wife's Mexican, my kids are half Mexican, so good stuff there. But I, I looked it, it was, up. Uh, I'm not spewing conspiracy theories on your on your show, Phil. I okay. did some research and I did look it up. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> well, I I I, be, I believe you. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, yes, the fact that he withstood all that, it was pretty amazing. And it was a really, really, really entertaining round. Uh, the second round would be a lot quieter on action. Thompson got a takedown about halfway through, was able to get a, a few strikes in, but not much still clearly a 10, nine round for Thompson. So I've, I had him tied going into the final round. 
Yeah, so Jay-Z got a, a takedown early on in the third round, gaining full mount. Thompson did a really good job from underneath, though, even grabbing rubber guard, which you didn't see very often, pulling a bit of a Diaz Brothers move by gesturing to the camera. He didn't flip off the camera, but he was kind of smiling and giving the thumbs up, which is I, I just goes back to what you and I always say about Josh, was he always looked like he was having a great time in the cage. And when you got rubber guard on a guy and you're like thumbs up to the camera and smiling, like that's – that's pretty cool. Uh, but after things got stood up, Jay-Z got another takedown, did nothing with it. Thompson was way more active from underneath, uh, but the Brazilian was on top, and that's how the fight ended. It was a tough one. I, I think that you know, the, the, the commentators pointed out that Jay-Z must have kind of tired himself out with that attempt with the, uh, you know, the guillotine in the first round, and I think so. I just feel like he was tired the rest of the fight. Uh, but I still felt like Jay-Z, despite not doing much damage after the first round, I just felt like he won the won the, the the first and the third rounds. I gave it to him 29-28. The, the judges saw it differently. They gave Thompson the unanimous decision win, but it was definitely close. I, again, I feel like Jay-Z won, but it was not it was not so definitive that I'm like, no, 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 he definitely won. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it was uh, close. It came down to that final round, and I just think Josh Thompson has a little bit of an aura at this point. He's the former champ. He's had these epic wars with Melendez. And I think even if it's just sort of implicit bias, the judges are sort of seeing Josh Thompson in a way that they're probably not seeing Jay-Z in. So anything close, they're going to go with Josh Thompson. Um, and, and that's kind of the history of judging. You kind of have to really beat the champ. Now, I know it's not a title fight, but Thompson carried himself as a champ. Um, and that's where all those things matter, like that confidence that, that comfortability, that fluidity inside the hexagon, it shows. And I think it makes a difference with judges that this guy's like, oh, he's he's winning. Yeah, he's in control. Even when he's in trouble, you know, Josh Thompson looks like he's having fun. So, yeah, I, I'd give him the, the decision victory. And, and quite frankly, I don't – obviously, these decisions are not fixed, but – would not have been good for Josh Thompson to lose this fight no, for his future. No. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. and it wouldn't have been good for Strike Force either. Yeah. Uh, no post-fight interview on the broadcast, but I did read what Thompson said. I found it in an article. He said, first off, I want to say, knock, knock, Melendez. Knock, knock, baby. I want to I, I want to say I'm knocking on the door. I want my title back. Uh, but that would actually not be the next fight for Thompson. Thompson would compete on a card in Japan at New Year's Eve that year. And then he would be out all of 2011 dealing with injuries. He wouldn't be back in strike force until March of 2012, where he would ironically be taking on KJ Noons. Cavalcante would be back the following year in a controversial bout with Justin Wilcox in strike force. Uh, more on that in a future episode. But here we are at the main event. 170 pounds. Nick Diaz defeated KJ Noons via unanimous decision to retain his strike force welterweight championship. Challenger was 9-1 coming in with seven knocks out, knockouts. He'd beaten Connor Hewn and Jorge Gurgel in strike for, I'm sorry, George Gurgel in strike force in the lightweight division, which somehow earned him a title shot uh, for the welterweight title. Uh, but he was also on a six-fight win streak, and again, he was the last guy to beat Nick Diaz at this point. The champ was 22-7-1 with 12 knockouts and seven submissions. He was riding a seven-fight win streak, which included wins over Frank Shamrock, Scott Smith, and Mary Saramskis. And he was coming off an armbar win over Hayato Maha Sakurai in Japan for the dream, the dream promotion. So both these guys were riding quite a wave of momentum. But the crowd was here for this fight for sure. As you might expect, they were firmly in Diaz's corner. 
couple minutes into the first round, the crowd roared when he dropped Nunes with a chopping right hand. And Nunes went down and Diaz pounced, but he wasn't able to do much with top position. As per usual with Diaz, lots of trash talk and some good striking. Uh, Nunes seemed to be targeting the body while Diaz was headhunting, as pointed out by Morrow on commentary. Definitely 10-9 Diaz in the first round. Nunes cut Diaz with a left hand early in the second. This gave the challenger more confidence as he started taking some talking some trash of his own. He also started landing more of his own shots, and the blood was really flowing from Diaz's cut. 10-9 Nunes after the second. The third round was very close. Both fighters landed some nice shots on the feet. I honestly couldn't call it. Maybe Diaz 10-9, but very, very close. Ironically, Militic on the commentary said Diaz's boxing style reminded him of Michael Nunn, whom Militic fought in a boxing match in July of 2020, losing by split decision. Wow, I remember Michael Nunn. He was Michael's second to Nunn, and uh, he was a really, really great fighter. I think he was a middleweight, and uh, he did have that pawing style, and he had that long range, and I had no idea that he boxed uh, Mike, uh, Pat Militic. Um if that's on the internet, I got to find that. It's yeah, it is. You can, you can, you can find the whole fight on the internet. It was a split decision win. I have no idea how good or bad the fight was, yeah. but it's just ironic that Militich is talking about none on this fight <laughs> on this card. And then he ends up fighting him 2010. So what, 11 years later, or uh, actually 10 years later, just yeah. under 10 years later. So small world, uh, but both Frank and Pat had a two for one or two, one for Diaz heading into the championship rounds. I do feel like Nunes was using his boxing really effectively, not allowing Diaz to do the little peppering strikes uninterrupted that he was so well-known for. Lots of head movement, trying different angles for the challenger. Uh, but towards the end of the fourth, Diaz caught Nunes with a knee, drawing another big crowd reaction. Now Nunes, he was bleeding from the uh, from near the mouth and nose. Uh, he seemed okay, but the, the strikes were definitely adding up. 10-9 for Diaz. Uh, Diaz actually went for a takedown early on, but Nunes avoided. And other than that, it was just more of the same in the fifth round with Diaz having a slight edge on the feet. Nunes just, just didn't seem to have the sense of urgency that he needed. Morrow asked both Frank and Pat if they felt like he needed a finish in order to win, and they both did. Uh, he was definitely down on the judges' score part, uh, scorecards at this point. And like I said, needed that finish, but after going after, he was not going after Diaz like he needed to in order to get to it. But Diaz, his right eye was an absolute mess after the final bell sounded. Uh, but, excuse me, I think most in the crowd believe that he won. Nunes threw over 600 strikes in the fight, almost 200 more than Diaz. So Diaz, known for, as a volume puncher, and I believe he was like in the 430s, and, and Nunes throws over 600, and he connected on 51% of them, which is great. So that's, I mean, he also landed a higher percentage of leg kicks, but when the scores were announced, Diaz had retained. Nunes was clearly disappointed, but Diaz went right over to him and hugged him, showing a lot of class and respect, and also gave him respect on the mic afterwards with Nunes returning it. Nunes, when he was interviewed, said, you know, he, Nick was the better guy tonight. Uh, you know, he definitely won the fight. And Diaz said, no disrespect, but hey, man, I beat him on the feet. I beat a boxer on the feet. So, and obviously I'm a better ground fighter. So, you know, basically saying, look, I'm a better fighter than this guy for sure. Um, definitely an entertaining fight. I mean, Morrow was building it up like it was a true classic. I don't see it as a classic. It, it to me, it just didn't. It had good exchanges. Um, you know, you did have that knockdown in the first round, but there was no like super close submissions. There was, you know, Nunes was never in danger of being finished. Diaz was never in danger of being finished. So, to me, it didn't have like signature moments. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, a, a very very good fight, but I I wouldn't call it a classic. I loved and hated this fight. Uh, it was entertaining, 
but I just don't think it was really good boxing. Now, let me explain that, okay? Obviously, KJ Nunes has had boxing uh, matches. Nick Diaz is known as being an incredible striker. Um, it just felt sloppy to me, okay? Diaz has tremendous range. His defense is not good. I mean, let's be real. And he cuts easily. Think about this. Nick Diaz got hit more than 300 times in this fight. That that should not happen, okay? When you're a good boxer, you should not be getting hit this much. And I just get tired sometimes of watching the MMA guys force themselves into a stand-up boxing match because they're not as good as the highest-level boxers. Boxing should be one uh, tool in your toolbox but it should lead to other things. Nick Diaz, had he took KJ Noons down, he would have submitted him. There is no doubt about that. But instead, Nick Diaz wants to box this guy because he wants to knock this guy out. And what happens? He gets cut, gets the crimson mask, and his entire fighting changes after the first round. So I was very frustrated, as I often am, with, with Nick Diaz. I just... I'm always like super excited about seeing him fight. And then I'm always like, why are you fighting like that? Stop fighting that way. Please do what you're good at. Take this fight to the ground. I know that he can throw his punches, but it's sloppy. Okay. Uh, I felt like both guys here were trying to win an MA, MMA fight. Okay. And they weren't trying to actually go out there and destroy the other guy. They were boxing and they were doing it sloppily and they were just getting hit way too many times. And obviously KJ did a number on Nick Diaz. If KJ had power, the fight would be over, okay? The other thing I hated was KJ's hair. It was a total oh, distraction. I am so with you on that. So <laughs> with you on that. He kept – I'm like, dude, just cut your hair, man. Like, he, he spent the whole time pushing the hair out of his eyes. I'm like, dude, why are you doing that? So I am very it's, much with you. It's like in pro wrestling when Roman Reigns getting beat up, and then he's, like, in the corner, and he's like – throwing his hair back, you know, so, you know, he can look good for the camera. And I'm just like, how hurt can you be if you're fixing your hair? And it's the same thing with KJ. I'm like, how hurt and into this fight are you if you're worried about your hair? And just cut it. I mean, maybe it's a little long because it it protects a little bit of the punches to the top of the head. I don't know. But I just thought it was a big distraction. That being said, obviously, these are two gutsy guys, uh, KJ Noons had a good career, had to retire early. Nick Diaz, obviously, still fighting. They bring a lot of intensity, but I don't know. I thought they sort of out-psyched themselves out a little bit for this fight. Yeah, I, I yeah, good, good, good insight there. Uh, I mean, by the way, though, how crazy it is is it that uh, Diaz is returning after over six and a half years on the sidelines. I mean, that's just, <laughs> it's like Christian, you know, coming back to AEW or, you know, edge coming back to WWE. Like it's after long, you know, long, long runs out of the, out of the, you know, the ring. It's just, but I think if anybody can do, it, it's going to be Diaz. And I am so psyched for that fight with Robbie Lawler. I'm very excited about that. A five round fight between the two of them. I mean, that's just, that's yeah. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, both Diaz and Nunes will be back in strike force in 2011 with Diaz defending the belt against Cyborg Santos and Nunes matching up with Jorge Masvidal. But that's it for this card. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Total disclosed payroll for the fight was $211,500. Diaz got 50K. Nunes got 10, which just, just sounds ridiculous. 
Josh Thompson got 50, while Jay-Z Cavalcante got 40. Marlos Kunin only got 3K, which I it just can't be right. I can't imagine that's what she got, while Kaufman got uh, gathered 20,000. Woodley got 15, while Galvo got 10. I, I just want to point out here, and I know, Josh, you like to jump on the the payroll thing. Uh, and I think I've mentioned this in a recent episode, but GSP was talking about uh, one of the, his fights in 2010, I think, where he got a disclosed 500,000, but he said he actually got like 10 million for the fight. So, and of course he's, that's a pay-per-view fight. This was not, but I, I just, I really do think that there's a difference between disclosed payroll and what guys actually, you know, what people actually get, you know, like I, I just, how could Marlos Kuhn win a title for a major MMA promotion and get 3000? Like it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense, especially coughing, getting 20. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I think that that's, I just, I think they get these discretionary bonuses or they get other things that, you know, maybe helps them out with tax, you know, tax withholdings. I, I, I don't know, but that's, that just doesn't make sense. Maybe the next fighter that we have on the card, maybe I, or uh, on the show, we can we can ask about that. But uh, it is worth noting that Scott Cooker said at the post-fight press conference, he was asked about both CBS and Playboy Mansion. He said that things were still on ice with CBS. As we know now, they would never return uh, to the network but because of the, the Nashville situation. And then uh, he also said they would probably not be returning to the Playboy Mansion, citing technological deficiencies and just overall lack of production value there. They had clearly outgrown the Playboy Mansion show, uh, uh, Playboy Mansion venue at that point. So, uh, so that makes sense. Uh, Diaz got a two-month medical suspension for his facial cuts, while Noon's got 180 days for fractures to his thumb and his jaw. Thompson and Jay Z both got six-month suspensions for potential long-term injuries. As for the fight card itself, I didn't love this event. Like I said, I just, just like the Houston card, I just, yeah, we got two champ. It's kind of very similar, you know. You had a four-fight main card with two championship fights. Uh, you know, in this one, in the last one, you had two, you had two ty- two new champions. On this one, you had one new champ and one one champ retain. Uh, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I know, you know, no, um, no surprises on this card. I mean, I, I thought I would think that Woodley would win. I would think Thompson would win. I would think Coonan would win and I would think Diaz would win. So no real surprises on this card. Again, no massive, you know, knockouts. I mean, the, you had finishes in two of the four fights and they were both somewhat anticlimactic. Uh, yes, you had the Josh Thompson first round, which was great with, with Jay-Z, but the, the remaining two rounds weren't all that great. And then the Nick Diaz, uh, you know, the main event with Diaz and Nunes was entertaining throughout, but again, just kind of lacked those signature moments that really would turn it into an all-time classic. But uh, not a great card, a good one. Uh, that's my thoughts. But Josh, what did you think? Yeah, I agree with you. It was kind of a strong B show, if I could use that term. Uh, the main event, under-delivered it was exciting at times but again there was no like wow that was quite the flurry in exchange the undercard was not that strong either that's part of the problem here i think josh thompson surviving uh, the submission was a big deal and then conan kind of submitting coffin from her back i thought was kind of exciting uh, i'd like to say that tyron woodley fight was good but he wasn't really fighting anybody he would have knocked um uh, I mean, that guy had no chance of winning. It was clear from the beginning. So it was okay. It was good. Good B show. I liked having Pat Militich on board. He's smart. He's technical. Uh, he's obviously a former fighter. He makes it feel more serious. And he's sort of the opposite of Frank Shamrock, who's also smart, 
technical and a former fighter, but Shamrock's more of an entertainer, and Militech is more of a nuts and bolts kind of MMA guy. So I thought they worked really well together. And then you got Morrow, who's got the best of everything. So um, not a memorable show, but, uh, you know, some cool things about it. Yeah. All right, well, coming up, the next card is much more exciting. You've got five fights on the main card, and four of them end uh, via punches. So, like, I think we're I think we're in for more fireworks. But Ovin St. Pro is on this card, so that should be interesting. Uh, it's his first main card fight uh, for Strikeforce. He's taking on Benji Raddick. You got Robbie Lawler back taking on Matt Lindland in an absolutely brutal. I, I don't know if you remember this one, Josh, but this is a brutal knockout. Uh, Bigfoot Silva's on the card taking on Mike Kyle. Paul Daly Semtex is here, and he's taking on. Scott Hands of Steel Smith in I I know this is going to be a tough one for you buddy. <laughs> I, I will be unavailable for this yes. <laughs> uh, show. Uh, I think he, oh. he he actually uh uh knocks well why give it away. It's a fantastic knockout. It's yes. a it's a face plant knockout. Yes. <laughs> so it's pretty brutal. And then in the main event we've got Dan Henderson taking on Babalu Sobral. Uh, this is, you know, this is interesting because Sobral said that he would not, he would not take on King Mo for the title, uh, and then Mo loses the belt, and Babalu, I, I would think, could have waited and tried to take on, um, you know, uh, the new champ in Feijiao because Feijiao was not a teammate of his, so I think he could have done that. But instead, he signs on for what is probably the higher dollar fight with Dan Henderson, which was actually a rematch between the two of them, so it did make sense and. Uh, this one's over pretty quickly too. I don't remember this one off the top of my head, but this is this is it's it ends emphatically. So, I'm looking forward to covering this one for sure. I think this is going to be uh, a fun one. Herschel Walker's supposed to be on this card, uh, but he has to pull out due to a cut. And it, yeah, it was a, a pretty pretty interesting one. The winner of Sobral Henderson was going to be taking on Rafael uh, Feijão for the light heavyweight championship. So, uh, so that track. So I'm, I'm looking forward to covering this one. As far as our next interview uh, episode goes, I'm going to try. In fact, I've got my, my Instagram open right now and I'm going to try to reach Feijão again. He had agreed to do it. Uh, and then we weren't able to make that happen, but I, I am going to try to see if I can connect with him for this card, uh, or not for this card, but for, again, for our next interview one, I do highly recommend that you check out our last interview episode. We spoke, uh, with, with one of the, one of the guys behind EA sports, MMA, Rob Heider, very interesting chat. And, uh, it was really cool to kind of break down the, the game and, and all of that. So I think it's worth checking out, uh, but make sure that you check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the hexagon pod, and you can reach me at Phil at inside the hexagon.com. I would love Love, love to hear from you and to get your direct feedback. Uh, But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. We will see you soon. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, GenXGrownUp.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I know, right?